and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and I trust uh, that, uh, by now that you had a nice Christmas time and you're having a happy new year so far. And before I read from Colossians 3 there, I just want to say, whenever I preach, I always uh, try to take some time evaluating whether there were three elements in the message that I want to be true every time I speak. And I want those things to be love, truth, and hope. I want everybody that heard me that morning or was there that morning uh, to know that God loves them, and so do I. That uh, God wants what's best for you more than you know to what's best for you. And that's why we preach and teach. We preach the easy things. We preach the hard things because we want you to get from where you are to where God wants you to be. And we do that out of love. God loves you, so do I. I also want there to be a sense of truth, the truth of the passage I preached. That day, I want you to own it with all your heart and mind and soul and and, uh, believe it's the very word of God for you. And as part of that, every time I preach, I want you to be evaluating, was Pastor Danny's, was the point of his message the point of the text? Because if it's not, I did something wrong. Love and truth, truth, the truth of the passage, the truth of the message. And I want there to be hope because I know that the Holy Spirit does this. He uses the word of God to convict you, to convince you of something that was in the passage that's not as true of your life as it needs to be. And so if you're not a Christian, he convinces you of your need to turn from your sins, repent and believe in Christ and be saved. Not because you can reform yourself. The song just said we couldn't and the song is right. But the fact that you're flying to Christ, you're running to Christ and saying, save me. All I can bring you is a sinner. And he says, that's all I want. I want you to come as a sinner and say, Jesus, I need you. And to repent of your sins, place your faith and trust in me. And if you're already a believer, he's going to use the Holy Spirit and the word of God to convict you of some area that could be a better area of service in your life for the Lord, some area that's not lining up. You've got this perfect position in Christ, and you uh, need to do some things to match up the practice in Christ. And so I want there to be hope for you that if you will uh, do your part, and that's hearing what God has said to you, uh, responding in faith to what he said to you, Uh, repenting where you need to repent, confessing where you need to confess, reordering where you need to reorder, that the hope is that you can go out uh, more ready to serve Christ this week. Love, truth, and hope. And I want to make sure all three of those are present every time I speak. And remembering that's going to be especially important today as we talk about the Christian and sexual purity. It doesn't take much talking on sexual sin to bring otherwise strong Christians to despair about how far short they fall of God's glory in the area of sexual purity. God calls you to sexual purity not because he's against you, but because he's for you. 
He knows what will bring out the best you, and it's not sexual immorality. It's not sexual impurity. It's not uncleanness. Instead, it's conforming your life, as in other areas, to the image of Christ, doing what Christ would do if he was in the situation that you were in. He wants you to experience God's best in your life, and sexual sin is not God's best for you. Think about how honest the Bible is about sexual sin in the life of God's people and how much it costs them. I think about Judah all the way back in the book of Genesis, his fornication with someone he thought was a prostitute. It was really his daughter-in-law. Either way, it's bad, right? And he committed a fornication with her, and when that was revealed, it caused him much embarrassment and humbling. Uh, Think about Moses when he came down from the mountain and how he had to rebuke Aaron for building an idolatrous golden calf and letting the people engage in sexual immorality right there before them. It caused people to die that day in Israel. Think about Samson. Samson, the great judge whose vitality was drained and his life and leadership were cut short for years because of his ongoing lust problem, multiple problems in his life because of lust and ungodly relationships, the times he was unequally yoked with non-believers. Think about David's adultery with Bathsheba that lost him the respect of his own children and many within the nation. You think about Solomon and his multiple marriages with women from other religions and how it caused his own heart to veer toward idolatry. In the New Testament letters, when we get to the New Testament, we see many references to God's people being called to get rid of the sexual sins that so characterized their lost days. And the reason why there have to be repeated calls for sinners to repent, uh, Christians to repent of those things that characterize them in the last days is because in their lost days was because so many of those things were still great sources of battle and struggle for them. God put all those things in the Bible because of the very real and very present struggle Israel in the Old Testament, and then members of the early church had in the New Testament to be pure, the struggle to be pure, the same struggle seen in our church and churches everywhere today. Now, whenever I preach on something like this, uh, what happens is there's people thinking, oh man, there's some big problem in the church Pastor Danny is addressing. Well, not really, except the ongoing problem we all have to be pure. Uh, The great thing about preaching through the Bible is you come to the next text, And the Holy Spirit has set you up to be here today to hear this and apply it in your lives. I think about a time back in Waynesboro, and I was preaching a message very like the one I'm preaching today. And there were two people there. They both were members of churches in the area, different churches. They both were married to somebody else. They were having an affair. They decided to leave their spouses. And they said, hey, we still need to go to church somewhere. Well, we know Danny through sports at the school and stuff like that. Uh, Waynesboro High School and Grace Christian School and things like that. So uh, we know him through soccer. We'll go hear him preach. And that was the message this week. You could not convince them afterwards that I hadn't deliberately knew they were coming that day and was preaching right to them. In reality, it was the Holy Spirit saying, it's not lawful for you to have a brother's wife. And you need to go back to your own. She needs to go back to her husband and y'all need to work things out. And so God was uh, putting that together as he's doing for somebody today. So folks, we've now come to the very practical instruction uh, part of Colossians. So Ephesians and Colossians are very similar books and they lay out similarly also. I mentioned symmetry in a minute. And I really like about Ephesians that the first three chapters are who you are in Christ. And then the last three chapters are what you do for Christ. Colossians, the first two chapters are wrapping yourself and your identity around your relationship with Jesus Christ. And the last two chapters are having your practice in Christ in many different areas, 
meet up to your position in Christ. And so here we are. So after assuring true believers that we have an all-sufficient Savior in Jesus and an all-sufficient salvation in the new birth experience, Paul now goes on to the ways our faith should be applied to every area of our life. And he starts with the topic of sexual purity. Next week, he'll deal with the words that come out of our mouth and the anger that we sometimes have behind those words. So we're in Colossians 3. Hopefully, you're there by now. Verses 5 through 7. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The therefore is there because Christians are to seek the things of God where he is. Uh, If then, verse 1 says, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is set at the right hand of God. Verse 2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So verse 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he mentions some specific things. Sexual immorality, your translation might read fornication. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. You used to, but aren't supposed to be part of now. The Christian and sexual purity. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. I I just want to thank you, Lord, for the time of praise and worship that we've had. That lifted my heart up to you and just singing about you and who you are to us. Uh, what What a blessing to be able to gather with the saints and do that and be led so well. And Lord, thank you for the book of Colossians. Thank you for your call on each and every one of our lives. Thank you that we are saved based on what you did for us, not what we can do for you. But thank you for the new heart you give believers to go along with the new birth, the new life experience you want them to have in you. You have freed us to recover and pursue that which you created us for, God. And Lord, we know that in heaven, all saints will be perfect positionally. And we're already got that as a guaranteed reality now in a sense. There is a sense in which we've already died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and raised with Christ. And we've got new life in Christ. And that is a position that no true believer loses because we didn't bring it into our lives. You did. Uh, You chose us before we chose you. You loved us before the foundation of the world. In the fullness of time, you made yourself altogether lovely to us. You made our sin altogether odious to us. And we turn to you for salvation. Thank you for that. But Lord, you have a call on our life for the practice that we do daily to increasingly match up to our position in you. And Lord, sometimes we give in to sin so many times that we give the devil a foothold and a stronghold that he no longer has the uh, legal right to have in our lives. And we have done that, uh, God, uh, through uh, not cherishing our salvation, not building on it, not working out the ramifications of our salvation in every area of our life. And sexual purity is certainly one of those, God. Lord God, I pray that as we hear this message, you will lead us to specific steps to take that we can more honor you in the area of purity. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, well, first, from verse 5, we want to see that every Christian is called to the mortification of their sexual sin. The mortification of their sexual sin. And um, so, look at verse 5. The ESV here reads, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, if you've got the King James, you're reading the words mortify. Mortify, therefore, your members which are on the earth. 
To mortify sin is to put to death or to kill sin. So we're called to mortify sin, to kill it, to put it to death. I left the book on the pew over there, but uh, you can come up and look at it afterwards. I'll order you one if you want one. Banner of Truth's got a beautiful little book called The Mortification of Sin by the great Puritan John Owen, and I've read it through several times. It's a great book. It's a great book, and Banner of Truth uh, Publishers has such a great way of taking those classic words of the Puritans and putting them in more readable English and taking out the lengthy passages, making them a little shorter and things. So it's a quick read, but a very good read, and it's helped me in my own battle with the flesh. Last time, we saw that believers are positionally dead to the sinful priorities that they had when they were non-Christians. But because the old fleshly nature is still around, Believers need to be practically killing sin every time it comes around. Now, I mentioned that book, The Mortification of Sin by John Owen, in part because of a great quote he has in that book, and I hope you'll remember it the rest of your life. I put it in your notes twice, I believe, and it's this. You must always be a killing sin, or sin will always be a killing you. You must always be a killing sin, or sin will always be a killing you. You have an enemy. His name's Satan. You, he, he tries to use the same temptations he's used for 6,000 years, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life to mess you up. When you become a believer, he knows he can't have your soul anymore, but he also doesn't want you to bring anybody to heaven with you. He doesn't want you to live a sense of victory in your Christian life. He wants to live, have you live defeated, distracted, and he will do anything to keep you from experiencing the fullness of your salvation and the fullness of all that Jesus is in and through you. John Owen knew as a Puritan Calvinist that nothing he did earned his salvation. He was saved based on the grace of God and what Jesus had done for him on the cross. But he also knew that if he was going to be the best John Owen he could be in this life, it would mean guarding his heart and being vigilant against the sins of the flesh. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I like the Puritans so much. Their doctrine is wonderful. They, they glorify God. They believe in the sovereignty of God, his providential care of all, over all things. Uh, they they uh, believe in, in, in all those classic doctrines, and yet they are relentless in talking to Christians about problem areas in their life. They say, hey, it's great that you believe all these things, but the time's come to put them into practice. And if you're not putting them into practice, then you have some serious deficiencies before God that need to be worked on. And so, in a very practical way, John Owen, who believed all the great doctrines of all the great reformers, said, you must always be a killing sin or sin will always be a killing you. Solomon said it like this in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. And the word keep could also be translated guard. Guard your heart. Well, how's that going? How's your, how, how are you doing at guarding your heart? You know, a guard keeps things from getting in, Right? And uh, you need to guard your heart. You need to keep your heart with all vigilance, with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, the Greek word for mortify, for put to death there in Colossians 3, 5, it's only used three times in the New Testament and only like this here. Actually, the other two times, it's kind of funny because it's a reference to Abraham when he was old and it emphasizes he was really beyond childbearing years. He should have been beyond childbearing capabilities. And so it talks about that older uh, impotence kind of deal, you know. And, uh, but here it's used to be killing sin. Paul uses it here in Colossians to show that we're to consider sexual sin as something that is 
was in our past and needs to stay as part of our past. It needs to stop being present now that we're alive to Christ. Now listen, do not read your Bible naively. If something is addressed over and over again by the apostles in the pages of the New Testament, it's probably being addressed over and over again because to each individual Paul and the others were writing and to each church the others were writing, it was a real struggle and problem that they faced. So we read 1 Corinthians and we know what 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient, love is kind. And yes, that's the ideal we're all to shoot for, but Paul was talking to saints who were dealing with some very unsaintly behavior in their midst. He says, here's your position, this is what you need to strive for, you need to raise your aspirations to that, but you've got people that are carnal, they're in the flesh, and what needs to happen is you need to repent and go from here to there. And sometimes we read the letters and we say, okay, we're supposed to be like 1 Corinthians 13. That's so far from where I am that I may not even be saved. And Paul says, no, no, you're reading it wrong. Your position is perfect. This is what you're aspiring for. Here's where you are. Keep on repenting. Keep on killing sin. Keep on moving toward God's perfect plan for your life, right? He wrote it to be as practical now as it was the, again. So the very fact that it's addressed over and over again shows how real a problem it was then in churches, even as it is now in churches. Read a book a long time ago, The Normal Christian Life, Watchman Nee, and it's a good book. It's a Chinese Christian that was a great guy and, and really responsible for a great movement of God in China. And uh, maybe I'm just picking unnecessarily at uh, the book and things like that, but he talks about the normal Christian life and he says, hey, the Bible has passages like 1 Corinthians 13. That should be what every believer experiences all the time. That should be the normal Christian life. And what I've seen is a lot of people have read that book and say, well, I struggle every day with dealing with the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So am I an abnormal Christian not experiencing the victorious Christian life, the normal Christian life? And so that's my problem with it because my own experience in doing soul care for 33 years now as a pastor, both with my own quest for holiness and talking to many of you and others about trying to get from where you are to where God wants you to be is, the normal Christian life is one of struggle. It is one where you do two steps forward and one step back. Now, we're not everything we want to be yet, but thank God we're not what we were. So from day to day, all you sometimes see is the struggle, but you know, I can look back, I was saved when I was 17, I'm 55 years old now, and I can say, man, the things that characterized me then aren't even true for me now. I'm so different than I was then. And that should be true in your life looking back 5, 10, 15, 20 years. If all you see is the same that it ever was, then maybe you need to think about the very new birth experience and whether you've had it or not. Maybe you've always tried through self-reform to get there and you never have, rather than relying on grace and getting ready for each day the battle that comes to true believers. What did those Christians in Colossae need to put to death? What's he saying there in verse 5? Put to death, mortify, kill it. He starts with five words that describe sexual sins, which we're going to look at this week. And next week, we will see him go into anger and speech sin. So look again at verse 5. He says, Christians need to be killing. They need to mortify. They need to put to death sexual immorality in themselves. Well, here it is. The Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. <laughs> Pornography, right? Porneia. 
Strong's Greek 4202, whenever my notes have that reference in, I'm referencing the strong system there that you can look up words with. Pornea represents and includes any sexual satisfaction gotten outside of the marriage covenant of a husband and his wife, including the use of pornography, premarital sex, and adultery. It covers it all. Some people say Jesus never addressed uh, you, you know, uh, sex outside of marriage. Sure he did. He used this word porneia several times, and that's what it means, everything. There should be nothing of the kind, uh, you know. So I wonder if you really believe what I just said. Let me state that another way. The Bible is clear that 100% of human sexual satisfaction to, is to come between a husband and his wife with zero tolerance for pornography, premarital sex, and adultery. Do you believe that? That's what the scripture teaches. If you don't believe that, I can tell you, you're never going to lead a victorious Christian life. Your Christian faith will always have idolatry and immorality mixed in with it. And you simply uh, will be a long way from being a faithful and fruitful follower of Jesus Christ. That's our tabernacle motto, uh, our mission statement, if you will. We want to reproduce faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ. So Colossians is going to help us now in these practical areas. And it starts with the desire and quest for sexual purity in the life of the believers. If you're going to get there, the first step you've got to take is admitting that you've got a problem. Admitting that you've got a problem. I was so glad for a conversation I had a couple months ago after one of these messages. I heard the testimony of one of our recovering alcoholics in the church. We've got multiple people that at one time were uh, addicted to alcohol or something else and God has brought them out. And I've always admired how Alcoholics Anonymous says, I am an alcoholic, not I was. They understand the power is still there. I'm just not going to give in to that power. Danny Campbell's a recovering cineholic. You know, I am a cineholic, you know. And I appreciate that. But I was so glad when this member said something to me uh, a couple months back. They're three years sober now. And this fellow said, back then I didn't have a drinking problem. I had a thinking problem. If you're a sexaholic or an alcoholic or addicted to drugs or something else, you, it starts with not a drinking problem but a thinking problem. Now in a moment we'll go through the other words that Paul uses to describe sexual sin. But let's start with seeing God's purpose for sex. So turn all the way back to page 1, Genesis 1 if you would, all the way back there. Because the place to start in calling for sexuality, uh, in calling for sexual purity is with God's plan for sexuality and marriage given in Genesis 1 and 2. So I love the fact that here we are struggling with all these things in America in the year 2023. 20, Sexual sin is rampant and confusion about gender is rampant and God's purpose for marriage and sexuality, the confusion is such, is right there. And here we go back to the Bible and the oldest thing in the Bible, Genesis chapter one, page one, God addresses uh, how he made people. So the place to start is in Genesis one and two and look at Genesis one twenty-seven. It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. So there's God's truth right there about gender. God created two genders, male and female. If you could do the biological work, you would see that you're either a male or a female all the way down to the cellular level. You can identify as the opposite sex or one of the 125 genders that Facebook has, kind of categories that Facebook has. But 
what is true scripturally of you is also true biologically of you at the cellular level all the way down. Sometimes people are born, they have ambiguous genitalia. You've heard of those cases. What about them, Danny? Is that a third category? No, it's really not because if the biological work is done all the way down at the cellular level, they're either male or female and should be raised according to that uh, DNA profile. So that's chapter one. In chapter two, he brings Adam and Eve together. He created both of them. Adam, then Eve, Eve from Adam, and he brings them together. Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father or mother, father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, he leaves her home, she leaves her home, they come together, the two become one. Hopefully, they'll be better individuals because they are in this marital covenant together before God but there'll also be something new. Just like when you bring sodium and chloride together, you get a new thing, you get salt, right? N-A-C-L, N-A-C-L together is salt. And so hopefully a better individual, but also, you know, I'm a better individual because I'm married to Elizabeth Campbell, but we're something new together. The life experiences we've had, the ability to glorify God together and our home be a lighthouse uh, has been like that. So here we see God letting us know not only his purpose for marriage, but in the coming together, the two becoming one flesh, he also lets us know his purpose for human sexuality. And you can derive two things that sexuality is for within the bonds of marriage from Genesis 1 and 2. The first one is for bonding, bonding, adhesively coming together, and uh, the, the sticky being there of this relationship with each other, stuck together in a good way. Uh, there's a bonding like that. But then also, the possibility of procreation. Uh, sexuality within marriage is for bonding and possible procreation so children can be born. Not every couple can have children, but they all come together and they can adopt and they can bless the world in many ways as their own lighthouse family. Uh, but sexuality is for bonding and the possibility of procreation. It's meant to be done within marriage. As the scriptures go along, I just read Leviticus 18 again recently. Every other expression of sin is called sin in the Bible. Whether it's pornography, looking at sinful images, lusting after someone in your heart, premarital sex, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and every other unnatural practice. Some are natural in the sense that a baby could come and then some are unnatural because two men can't have a baby, two women can't have a baby. So in addition to it all being sex and veering from God's purpose and plan for our lives, uh, you have the added difficulty uh, of the unnatural practice and the labeling of those there. Uh, but uh, let's be very clear here. The biggest problem for many churches is talking about those people who commit homosexual sin or transsexual sin or something like that and tolerating fornication and immorality in uh, your own midst and things like that. Uh, in God's eyes, it's all sin that keeps you from seeing God's plan for your life. Amen? So it all should be called sin. It should all be repented of. It's all sin that needs to be repented of if we're going to experience God's best. We must be like Job who said in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes, therefore I, how then could I gaze upon a virgin? How, why should I gaze lustfully upon a young woman? I wonder, how are you doing at guarding your heart? Has that led you to make a covenant with your eyes so that you won't loathe it, look at images, you won't lust after somebody? We talk about the sin of the second look. You know, obviously, if somebody is dressed provocatively and you're driving down the road, you see that. But 
the sin comes when you keep on looking or look in your rearview mirror or turn around and drive around the block five times so you can see it over and over again. The sin of the second look. You say, I wouldn't drive around the block five times. Yeah, but you'll look for hours on your phone or on the computer at images of somebody that's not your spouse and it is tearing little pieces of your heart up. It's messing up your brain's ability to appropriately bond with your spouse later on. It's messing up the intimacy you have with your spouse now. And uh, so if you're there, you need to revisit guarding your mind, guarding your heart. You need to revisit making a covenant with your eyes and not even a hint of sexual immorality being named among you. Well, back in Colossians 3, Paul goes on to list four other words that describe sexual sin. He says impurity. It comes from the word we get uncleanness from. There's an uncleanness there. He mentions passion. In this context, it could be translated lusts. Lust is selfish passion. Lust can't wait to get, but love, true love, can always wait to give. And that's why if you're dating someone, you want to realize, okay, I want to learn about the opposite sex as I date this person, but I want to make sure I don't take something from them that is supposed to be their gift to their spouse on their wedding night. I don't want to defraud my brother in this matter as 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about. We want to present the image to everybody dating that what if you could talk to that person's future spouse? Would they shake your hand and say thank you for teaching them about how to be treated by a man of God? I could do that for Elizabeth's first love. Elizabeth and I uh, uh, were married. Uh, we met each other in college and married later on. In high school, she had a boyfriend, and she would say they were in love. I didn't have anything that serious when I was in high school, so I had not had somebody that I said those words, I love you too, and they meant forever. And, uh, but she was pretty close to that with a high school boyfriend, but he was a complete Christian gentleman. And I have been able to see him and thank him for treating her right, teaching her how to be treated, teaching her what to expect. And oh, I hope so much that that's true of the young men and women in our church. And that's what you have for your life. If it's not, repent now whether you need to repent of something that happened 30 years ago, whether you're repenting of something that happened three days ago. You know, we want to be everything we can be for Christ. Uh, three times in the Song of Solomon, a phrase occurs, and I think I put it in your notes there. And the phrase is, do not arouse or awaken love until it's time. Do not arouse or awaken love until it's time. Those who come from a purely evolutionary standpoint, we reject the teaching of evolution here at the tabernacle in favor of God's being the creator of all, that there's a designer that created you, he's got a purpose and plan for your life. But evolution teaches that you're an animal and can act on animalistic urges. In fact, you just ought to. You can't deny those urges and you hear this kind of thing all the time in movies and TV shows and you just, you know, be true to yourself, follow your heart. You know, the Bible says be suspicious of your heart, guard your, uh, guard your heart. Um, be suspicious of what you feel. You know, you need to direct what you feel with truth. But uh, creationists believe you've got a precious gift there. And um, when it says, do not arouse or awaken love until it's time, in the last 10 years or so, scientists have actually discovered that there's so much happening when someone begins to get aroused and look at the uh, erotic material, if it's pornography, or if they start to have a date and start to move towards sex and things like that. There, there's something going on in the brain of the male, there's something going on in the brain of female, and it's so amazing. When a person looks at porn or engages in sexual activity, bonding chemicals are actually released in the brain. You know what's happening? It, it, God has set up our brains to say, oh, this must be the one. 
This must be where I'm supposed to release these chemicals so I bond with a person and, and, and to set up possible procreation with a, a spouse of someone. So the brain just, when you start going there, the brain starts releasing those chemicals. And they are specifically for bonding. And in uh, someone who knows the word knows that's supposed to wait for marriage with your spouse. So a virgin's supposed to marry a virgin. And the first sex, the only sex they ever have is within that marriage relationship. And that's where those chemicals are supposed to be released for the first time. And yet, many times, it is not done that way. Every sinful thought and activity we bring into our sexual life messes that up. Well, that's why I've got these basketballs over here. You've been wondering... And this is why I've got this duct tape over here. You've been wondering, or maybe you haven't. Maybe you can't even see it if you're over there. But um, you know that duct tape is one of the most wonderful ad adhesives in the entire world, right? You guys know that. And so let's see if I can do this. I didn't want to do it with my teeth like earlier. <laughs> so it's an adhesive. Oh, there's a basketball. I would like to play with that basketball. I'll use my duct tape. Duct tape represents the bonding chemicals in the brain. Okay, so I put it along that line there and along that line there, and I pat it down a little bit. Okay, let's see. Oh, my goodness, look. I'm adhesed to the ball, and it is sticky. It's keeping it there, and it would, if I left it on there, it would go down a little bit, because, but because this is the first time I've used it, it would hold the ball up at the very end for a long time. Uh, but, you know, I'm kind of bored. One basketball's not enough for me, so I think I'll go on to this next basketball. Now, my brain doesn't know any better. It's kind of confused now because I thought, well, I just released the chemicals. That was supposed to be to have you bond and possibly procreate later with somebody. And so I just released the chemicals. What are you doing? You're putting me down here too? Wait a second. That's not the ball we were with a minute ago. And it happens like that, and it's there, and then we do that a little bit. And look, it's there, right? It's there. Uh-oh. That adhesive would have stayed on that ball for about as long as I wanted it to. Now, this ball, it got up off the ground. Uh, oh, you know what? <laughs> Maybe I just, I need to have more experience at all this, don't I? Well, here's another basketball. Let me try this one out. All right, let's see. Let's get it right here. We'll put that about right there like the other one was and do it on the line and that one there and in the middle too. And here we... Well, that third time, it wouldn't even pick it up off the floor. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his forgiveness. Thank God that there's new life in him. But that's the reality of what's going on in our brain. The chemicals focus in. God put them in there for bonding so that when we are with our spouse, oh, all of a sudden we're driven toward that person and they're driven toward us. And where it's possible, babies come from that mix and all that happens and it's beautiful. But when we add in the multiple partners and all the different things before marriage, when we add in all that pornography that winds up messing up our brain and all those things, our brain starts rewiring and it makes it exceptionally difficult to be appropriately bonded in the right way and intimate in the right way with our spouse one day. And so we start all the way back with our children and our youth and we say hear what was said today it's a precious gift that can wait for marriage and needs to wait for marriage 
and multiple experiences will not help you like the world says. Uh, I've, I've been doing this a long time, and I've known many people that were mocked and belittled because they said they were going to be virgins when they married. And their friends mocked them and mocked them and mocked them. My sister became a Christian a little bit after I did, and she was at a sleepover with some of her girlfriends, and she's about 12th grade at this point, and they were mocking her because she was the only virgin there. And she said, look, girls, I love you, and I'm not judging you. I'm just saying you got this all backwards. She said, I can be like you are this coming week. I can sleep with one of the guys. I'm a cheerleader. There's the football, you know, all the different stuff. And she said, no, no. She says, I've come to know Christ, and my sexuality will be a gift I give to my husband on our wedding night. Young people, that's what we want for every one of you. We're also aware that because of the prevalence of pornography, children, youth are already exposed to a lot of it, and it's already messing up their brain. They already need to repent of it. It's already something that's rewiring their brain. And for some of you, you are older and you've made lots of mistakes and God has so graciously saved you and he's forgiven you and you can have an amazing life with your spouse, but you don't need to keep adding into the sins of the past with more sins now. It'll never help. It'll only continue to make things worse. And we are here to help you with that. We have people on the staff. We have people in the church that have been through the journey and God has brought them out and has helped them in their story to help bring men and women out. This is a problem for men and women both. Next, Paul speaks of evil desire. It is not wrong for a husband and wife to desire each other. The same word is used of Paul's desire to go to heaven, but here he adds the word evil, evil desires, sinful desires, giving in to the lust of the flesh and sinful desires are the opposite of living by faith. And then he brings in the word covetousness. Instead of worshiping God, it leads to the worship of idols. Instead of being content, sinful desires lead to coveting our neighbor's girlfriend or wife, and we become idolaters and immoral. And throughout the scriptures, that's the concern. Don't worship any God but God, and do not be involved in immorality because you're just ripping off pieces of your heart and messing things up. And God is so gracious and so kind to us that when we repent, confess it as sin and repent of it, he starts that healing process. And many of you can testify of how rich and full your marriage is on the other side of those things. Well, verse six, every non-Christian who refuses to repent is still heading for judgment. He says in verse six, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. There are those in our day, some of whom say they are Christians. There are denominations that say a, you know, sexual sin like homosexuality is not only okay, you can be a pastor of the church and be one. Um, they say things the Bible calls sexual sin are not really sin. You need to understand with everything inside you, they are sadly mistaken. They are speaking against the word of God. To speak against the word of God is to speak against the God of the word. And so you set yourself up as fighting God and it will show up in your behavior in life. Folks, God can forgive anything, but you can't be forgiven if you don't agree with God that your sin is sin and repent of it. Repent means change of mind. Confess means to say the same thing about. Then you change your mind. You say the same thing about your sin that God does. Then you change your mind about it. It's not okay. It needs to get out of my life. It's not consistent with this walk with Christ I have. Don't kid yourself. God will judge sin. For the believer, he judged it by laying it on Christ as he died on the cross. For the unbeliever, John 3.36 says they're still under the wrath of God. 
which means those sins will be dealt with. They'll have to be given an account for at the great white throne judgment, and then they'll have to go to the lake of fire forever. Now, again, what I like about Colossians is how brief it is. But for every one of these teachings that's in Colossians, there's another place in Paul's writings where he says a little bit more. So I want you to turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4 and let us see a little bit more about this doctrine here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Anybody here want to know what God's will is? Yeah, he said, I want to know the will of God for my life. I want to know what God's will is. Okay. You're the one that said it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What's that mean? Well, we know sanctify comes from the word cleanse. What's it mean to be sanctified? That you abstain from sexual immorality. Same word, pornea. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body, the members, his own members, some of the translations say, in holiness and honor. Well, you know what that means. Verse 6, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We're about love. We're not about lust. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. How could you wrong uh, another in your matter of sexual sin? Well, that person is somebody's future spouse. You're somebody's future spouse. You're wronging their future spouse. You're wronging your future spouse. That you don't defraud your brother in this matter because the Lord, and this is the scary part here, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gave his Holy Spirit to you. Have you been defrauding yourself, cheating yourself out of your future? Have you been cheating others out of their future spouse by the things you do? It's time to repent. It's time to get it on back on track. One of the things I love about the day we're in is that flooding into churches in America are the refugees from the sexual revolution. All those lies, all those gaslighting lies that Satan has told. And praise the Lord, there are now homosexuals that are hearing, uh, even those that are married and they're hearing uh, the gospel and they're repenting and they're being saved and then they're going to preachers and they're saying, hey, help us work this out so that we can live. We, we know we can't stay together, but help us move toward the future in this and so we can... Uh, claim what God has for us and that's happening with those who have been uh, adulterers and those who have been fornicators and all the different things those who have been addicted to porn and other stuff it's all happening and it's a wonderful thing and you know this is the world we live in this is the world we live in if we lived in Las Vegas as people came to Christ we'd have to help them on the other side of gambling problems guess what that's part of Danville's future now too and in some ways already our present we lived in San Francisco if our church was there, we'd have to help, have, help people coming out of homosexuality. And increasingly, that's true for the entire country because it's a small world now tied together by the internet, tied together by the smartphone. And uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life are rampant throughout the earth. And so we have to be ready to help people as they get to the other side. Guess what? It was just like that back in these cities that we're talking about now. It was just like that. Ephesians 5 3 says but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people so hopefully you've had the love in the message and you've had the truth now let's go to the hope verse 7 lets us know that God allows turns to him and you turns back to him amen 
Look at verse 7. He says, And these two you once walked when you were living in them. Many of the Colossians had been all about sexual sin in the past, but they were different now. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11. The hope and the truth put here together. Or do you not know, verse nine says, first Corinthians six, nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, there's our word again, porneia, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Isn't that great? Such were some of you, such were some of you, but you were washed. You say, but Danny, what if I'm still in a present tense struggle with sin? Don't give up. You are in the battle we are all in and you are going to achieve victories. There's going to be some setbacks along the way, but don't give up. Paul wrote these words to people struggling with these things. In fact, just a few verses later, you know what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18? He says, flee sexual immorality. Such were some of you, but you still need to flee. You got out of it, but flee. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I'm back to the basketball illustration there. Every time it costs you something. Every time it costs you something. Every time it costs you something. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. So there will, there's a, a toll to pay for all of that that you put into your mind. Paul wrote those words to people that were already Christian but like us had to fight for their purity every day and we need to fight for it every day. As you do, God will fight with you and he'll fight for you. I think about the grace that's in First and Second Corinthians. In First Corinthians chapter 5, Paul called the church to discipline a man who was in sexual sin and wouldn't repent. He said, you got to put him out of the church. Not because people don't struggle. Everybody struggles. But this man refused to repent. And there's people that go to churches and they won't call it sin. They'll leave their wife and want to bring their girlfriend to church. You can't do that. You can't do that. Discipline means, sorry, you're out of the church. But even as Paul told them, that this unrepentant, sexually sinning person that would not repent when confronted about it, even as he told them they've got to leave, he was saying, you're giving them over to Satan. And what that was for is in hopes the person will say, you know what, I'm isolated. This is not right. I want what God's got for me. I'll repent and I'll go back to the Lord and to his church. And the truth is in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, that man is back. He has repented. Let him on in. Be gracious to him. There's no more stigma that needs to be there. Might mean he's not the leader that he was before if he was a leader. Some things do, especially when you're in a power position and commit a sexual sin, you probably shouldn't be a leader in the church again, you know. But you can be restored to fellowship, even if not leadership. God responds to repentance. Do you remember Judah? Do you remember Judah? What a mess. An illicit relationship with his daughter-in-law. And his only defense was, I thought she was a prostitute. Oh, either way, it's horrible. This is Judah. <laughs> Judah, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Of the 12 tribes, he's from that tribe? 
You betcha, because he's a God of grace. One of the twins born to that illicit relationship was actually the founder of a little city called Bethlehem we just sang about at Christmas time. The tribe of the Messiah, the birthplace of the Messiah. God took the mess and in the midst of repentance brought beauty out of it. And when Ruth comes out of her mess in the book of Ruth, they're still celebrating that maybe she could be like that daughter-in-law and the child that was born to her that became the founder of Bethlehem. Remember Aaron? God forgave him and he served as Israel's first high priest. He's the one that would say the blessing over the people. Remember Samson? God forgave him and he was able to do one last great thing for God before he died. Remember David? Well, God forgave him and God even used his marriage with Bathsheba to bring the line of Judah's kings into being. Remember Solomon, God forgave him and he was able to write about his own comeback in the book of Ecclesiastes. He talks about how all sinful decisions are vanity and in the end he says the conclusion is this, fear God and do what he says. And he wanted that word to get out to everybody. God can bring his plan A out of our plan B choices and I wouldn't be here if he didn't. My mom was married before she was married to my dad and uh, when she got pregnant with my older sister, her husband at the time wasn't ready to be a father. He left her. A couple years later, my mom met my dad at a bowling alley. I'm, I'm the spare uh, from that. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if there's not grace and hope and mercy and beautiful stories that come out of whenever you get back on track with God, God can use you. And we've got some great stories like that in this room. And every one of you that has some mess in your past, you'd say, man, when I talk to my kids about it, when I talk to others about it, I would never recommend going through the series of sins, you know, that, that, that messed my brain up some. But I'm so thankful God's met me in his grace and his forgiveness. And I'm here now and I'm testifying and I want to make every right decision now I can so that I experience his best in my life. And I'm going to tell it every which way I can. The message of uh, serious, how serious these things are, the message of God's forgiveness. I'm going to talk about it like that because God's people can. You still need to repent of past sin and to flee present sin. You, some people can't do this because they say, well, if I, if I, if I uh, go back and say that I was wrong to do that sin, then I'd have to say that the, the baby that's here is a mistake or something like that. No, God has a purpose and plan for every life that's born, however it's born. He's going to do something through that beautiful little boy, that beautiful little girl. But for your sake of getting on track and being everything that you need to be before God, you've got to go back and say, yes, it was sin. Lord, I confess it to you as sin. I'm so thankful you, you where sin abounded, your grace abounded all the more. And I love that little baby that's in the world now. But I want to experience your best for me. And so from now on, I'm going to say not even a hint. I'm going to flee. I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes. I'm going to get with that pastor, whoever I need to, and talk. So I got some accountability in my life. You must always be a killing sin. Or sin will always be a killing you. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Brothers, I write these things to you so that you do not sin. But if anybody sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the entire world. Will you bow your heads?
Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.